Well, if you will notice on the homepage of the website, we have the announcement about opening up next week, but off to the right-hand side, we also have different handouts that I hope you were able at some point during this time to print out. If not, we are going to have some copies of Romans 5, but I don't ever want you to underestimate the idea of marking up the text. Marking up the text is vitally important to how we learn God's Word. It causes us to pay more attention, to think about word relation, flow of thought, what verbs are being used, all of this. And it's vitally important that we understand our engagement with the text is going to be um, fuel on the fire of the Holy Spirit that motivates us forward to love and good deeds. And so I would encourage you that if you have not done that, that you will start doing that. You may think that you can mark up your Bible, but I guarantee you're going to mark something in your Bible that you wish you wouldn't have, and you're going to spend a lot of money on whiteout, and I want to save you from that mistake. Um, we are in Romans chapter 5. We have finished Romans 3, verses 19 through 4, 25, when everything is told to us about justification by faith. And what we are going to be looking at in this first part of Romans 5 from verses 1 through 10 is we are going to be looking at blessings, and I, I hesitate to call them consequences, that are going to flow out of uh, justification by faith. Usually consequences has a negative connotation to it. These are nothing but blessings. This is something that the Lord is completely heaping upon us, and there are seven of them that are mentioned in this section of just 10 verses. Now, I'm not going to hit every one of them today. We're going to do with, deal with one, uh, probably two, maybe three. Uh, we'll see where the Lord leads us and when the time runs out or if it does. I don't know. I still haven't taken the time to get rid of the clock in the back, but we'll see what happens. But I want to do some explanation real quick. I'm going to ask you to maybe jot some things down. Some of this is stuff that you've heard before, but it's vitally important that we grasp it in order to move forward so that we follow what Paul is telling us here in Romans 5. There is a difference between a believer's position and their condition. A position before God is something that is instantaneous, that is had at the moment of faith, that can never be taken away, that is permanent in God's giving to us, and it's all about His work for us. Uh, I, I had a good opportunity this past week to read a lot more uh, in a two-volume series by Watchman Nee called The Gospel of God, um, and he, he brought up a really good point. When we talk about the law, we talk about what man does for God. But when we talk about grace, we talk about what God has done for man. And that's a point that we want to focus down on, is that everything about our position before God is all of grace. It's completely undeserved. We should have gotten the exact opposite. We should have been in the lake of fire forever and ever, tormented with brimstone, in anguish, crying out, um, helpless, lonely, alone, however you want to say that for an eternity, but God in His grace has sent forward His Son, and by responding to the gospel, we are now put in a position where every blessing is lavished on us completely without fault. And so this is a, a, an incredible position that we're in. Now, when we talk about our practice, we talk about what daily life looks like, how we live, how we think, how we talk, what we look at, how we spend our time. And one thing that becomes instantly clear to the brand new believer is that our practice falls way short of our position, or our condition falls way short of our position. 
And so from this point forward, you're going to hear me use those phrases. So let me give them to you. If you were to get out a piece of paper and maybe draw a line down the middle. On the left-hand side, we were going to talk about things like position or you're standing before the Lord, those types of things. On the right-hand side, we would talk about your condition or your practice or your state, how you live your life. So on the left-hand side, you would have position. On the right-hand side, you would have condition. Left-hand standing, right-hand state or how you want to put practice over there, either way. But it's important that we understand that there are a lot of things that are true about us and very much ours because of God's grace that is given to us, but because this dead man that is known as the flesh still hangs on us, it is hard to have Christ live his life through us when we've got sin that still wants to try to gain control of us. Now, with all that being said, Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 5 and move forward, and we'll start breaking some of this down. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly." For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Some things I want to draw your attention to as we just deal with the first two verses. First, I want to make sure that you look at verse 9 before we engage those verses. You look at verse 9 and we understand that we are justified by his blood. The blood is the effectual tool that justifies an individual. It is what pays for sins. Justification by faith and the forgiveness of sins comes only possible by perfect blood that's been shed. This is a death truth. In other words, it's the idea of the giving of the life of the Son of God as the sacrificial lamb on behalf of sins, those multiplied infractions that we have committed against God. And by giving of that, his blood is the tool. His blood is death truth, and it only deals with the forgiveness of sins. We have not branched into the resurrection yet. The resurrection 
does not have anything to do with the forgiveness of sins. This is important for us to understand. The resurrection has to do with what it is to live the brand new imparted life that's been given to us. And you might say, well, they're one and the same. Yes, but no. You receive this new life at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ, but to think that we are now walking in this newness of life and exercising this newness of life with Christ living his life through us uh, to any sort of acceptable capacity is just foolishness uh, of not understanding how God's word is divided up. And so when we step into Romans chapter 5 and we're moving forward with this, it's important for us to remember that everything that we have here in these seven blessings that we're going to see over the next few weeks deals with the idea of the fact that the blood has provided it, that the blood was sufficient to make it happen, that it's a gift. And so notice verse 1, therefore, immediately if you're a good Bible student, you heavily underline that and you kick an arrow back and up going to what was previously said. And everything encapsulated in therefore is Romans 3.19 through 4.25. Everything that has just been said is the facts surrounding our justification. Now remember, justification is declared righteous by God before God because of the perfect payment of Jesus Christ. And so notice he says, therefore, having been, notice it's a past decisive act, having been, it's an already done deal, justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that it says we have peace. Notice this deals with the idea of an already present idea. In fact, if we wanted to divide this up, we would see having been justified by faith, that speaks what's happened in the past for us. That's already, excuse me, that's already happened. We talk about what we're dealing with presently is we presently have peace with God. We presently possess peace with God. In fact, the Greek word here, ekumen, is the idea of possessing something, that it is an, an actuality that we own. It's been given to us and we can embrace it for ourselves. It's something that we have now. And it's important for us to understand when these blessings roll out of this, this is something that is indicative. It's not subjunctive. There's a lot of debate regarding the Greek surrounding this because uh, with, the, with the Greek word here that's used, it could either be interpreted indicative or subjunctive. Uh, the idea of the indicative is the fact that it's a state of being real. It's something that is in actuality and because justification by faith was a passive thing, Peace with God is a passive thing. Notice it doesn't say we strive for peace with God. That's not the idea. Or we try to obtain peace with God. Or we can try to get peace with God. You know, if you look at your NASB and you look at some of the marginal notes that might surround it, it it'll tell you that there are two early manuscripts that have, let us have peace with God, almost like it's an exhortation towards that direction. That completely destroys the flow of thought of what Paul is looking at here. And I think that context tells us it shouldn't be understood that way. The idea is, is that you have peace. Let me ask you a question. If I, if I asked you, do you have peace with God? How would you answer? Think about it for a moment. Maybe write it down. Do you have peace with God? What would you say? Some of you would sit here and say, no, I don't have peace with God. I would tell you that, yes, you have peace with God. And I think one of our problems is, is we have confused the peace with God that is a free gift at the moment of believing Christ with the peace of God that is something that we have as mentioned in Philippians 4. 
by submitting ourselves to the Lord in prayers and, and supplications, giving him thanksgiving. And we're told that the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a big difference between peace with God, which is a positional truth, and peace of God that we have, which is a condition truth. It's conditional, and it refers to our condition. Uh, for instance, you might sit here and you think whether or not you have anxiety in a moment. And you say, well, how come I don't have the peace of God in this situation? Well, some of it might be because God's giving you discernment by your unsettledness. That could be one way to look at it. But another reason is because we didn't ask him with thanksgiving. That's why we don't feel peace at that time. But anytime we deal with that idea of feeling, that always refers to our condition, not our position. We have, regardless of how we feel about it, peace with God. Or let me say this, regardless of what you try to do about it or try to deny that you have it, you have it. You have peace with God. Why is that? Because it's not a result of anything that you've done. It flows out of the payment of the blood. Because sins have been paid for and pardoned, there is no longer any animosity or enmity between you and the creator of all things. Or let me say it this way if we want to talk about peace. The war is over. The war between you and God is over. It is no longer something where he is against us. We are no longer butting heads anymore. It is now something where we have been, and here's the key word that you want to get in relation to peace. We have been reconciled to him. That is a word that you want to get. Reconciliation is how we want to understand this. Now, if you notice... If you've got your paper with you, if you just look down in your Bible at verse 10, you notice that it says there, for if while we were enemies, so that was us before we knew Jesus, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So notice that reconciliation is to God. That, that was the relationship that was fractured. And it's through, it only comes by the channel of the death of his son. Notice it doesn't bring up the resurrection there. So notice, this is all part and parcel of positional truth. And the very first blessing that we have out of justification by faith is the fact that we have absolute peace with God. This word peace in the Greek means harmony, or it's the idea of a state of well-being. It is a present possession. If you are in Christ, you have this. Do you have peace with God? Yes, you do. Why? Because it's objective. It's not subjective. You have it in totality and you have it because of Jesus, regardless of how you feel about it. You are now at peace with God. There are a couple of things I want to draw your attention to as far as passages that would help exemplify this idea of peace. If you would take your Bibles and turn over to the right to Colossians 1. And you can jot this down. If you pull up the discussion questions and you have discussion amongst your family, you'll read through some of this as well. But if you look over at Colossians 1, let me see here. And we could get crazy with this. It's talking about, I mean, Colossians 1 is just blowing up the greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, but I would ask for you to, um, yeah, let's just start in 13. Let's just go for it. I have a feeling that everybody's happy today. 
supposed to be 82 and partly cloudy. That means you can go outside and swing on the swing set. Park should be open by now. So let's move forward. Verse 13 of Colossians 1. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So there's that positional truth. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn meaning he has a special status, not that he was created. Verse 16 says here, For by him all things, now watch this, all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are different levels of celestial beings and principalities and powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Same idea, firstborn, special status, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Or maybe your translation says preeminence in everything. He's number one in every situation. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now watch this, and through him to reconcile, get that reconcile all things to himself, having made, here's the word, peace through the blood of his cross. Notice it's a death truth. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, why do we bring this up? Is it just because it says reconcile and peace? No, what I want you to see is that people who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ are a type of first fruits of the great reconciliation of all creation, whether it be visible or invisible, that is to come. In other words, when somebody becomes a believer in Jesus Christ and now has all of these blessings that have just been given to them in their position, it is a foretaste of what God is looking to do through Jesus in totality when he brings his kingdom to literally rest upon the earth and at the end of that deals with all sin and division decisively once and for all. In other words, we are the first steps in peace with God ourselves of a peace where he's looking to reconcile the whole world through that in the end. Now, I don't know about you, but that immediately evokes, invokes a feeling in me that it's pretty darn special. That it's something that I need to pay probably a lot more attention to. And again, regardless of how I feel about it, the peace that I now have with God is a peace that is a precursor to what he desires for the future. The idea of reconciliation tells us of a coming back into the relationship that we were always meant to have with God. It is a complete and decisive dealing with sin. If sin were in the mix in any way between us and God, there would be no reason that we could have peace. This is why we talk about positional truth and we talk about our relationship with God. But when we talk about our condition or our practice, we talk about fellowship with God. 1 John 1, 9 is meant to restore fellowship, not relationship. And it's important that we understand those differences. There is nothing that can ever revoke your relationship with God. It is solidified because of Jesus Christ. But... There are things that we allow in our lives that create 
distortion or that fracture the fellowship with him. It strains the reconciliation of the type of deep intimacy that God wants to have with us. And this is the reason why we come to him humbly and we confess these things. Now, I'm not going to branch into the other verse that I have. You can go through that in the discussion questions, but it's important for us to see that believers having peace with God, no longer any, any strife amongst our, ourselves and Him, no longer any barrier that keeps us from Him, this means that God is for us, that we are now on His team, that we're now moving in the same direction with Him, that we are now going forward, and we can go forward with absolute harmony, knowing that He is never against us. I don't know about you, but a lot of times, and I'm even ashamed to admit this, but a lot of times I, I have blessings that come about in my life and I, and I think upon how amazing it is and how much God deserves the glory for, for these types of things and how much I just want to praise him for it. But, but there's always kind of like you can just hear God kind of cracking his knuckles around the corner and he's just waiting to give it to me at some point and really dish out what I deserve uh, and, and really, you know, throw me down to the ground kind of idea. That is unbelief in my life. That is an area of unbelief, thinking that, well, eventually God's going to get me. You know, eventually I'm going to get totally what I deserve. If I got totally what I deserve, there would be no place for grace in my relationship with him. And so as, as a means of confession to you, I will go ahead and admit that is, that is thinking that is in line with unbelief, and it completely sees God as wrong. And that is where my mind needs to be renewed, because regardless of my thinking, I have peace with God. Notice that this peace comes in, in Romans 5.1 through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's all his work. In fact, if you were to compare this, let's say you did a word study of the idea of peace in Paul's writings, and you especially looked at how it was in relation to Jesus Christ, you would quickly come upon Ephesians 2.14 that speaks of Jesus Christ as our peace. In other words, he is the one who grabs God's hand and he grabs our hand, and he makes that connection permanent and sufficient. He is our peace. Because we are in Christ, we are at peace with God. And I think that's interesting. Notice that peace, just it's not just a position that we're in. It is a person that makes it possible. So notice it's all his work. It's a fact of the matter. It's the fact that Jesus does it. And he became guilty for us. We became the righteousness of God. So notice we have in the past, we have been justified by faith. In the present, one of the things we have is peace with God. But we all have, also have something second that is brought up in, in the present, the present tense. And it's also the second blessing that has been made available to us. And this is the idea that starts out verse 2. Notice, through whom, and that whom, of course, is Jesus. If you want to draw a little arrow pointing to Jesus Christ at the end of verse 1 and into the whom of verse 2, that would be perfectly understandable. Notice that through Jesus, through whom also we have, and notice that's an indicative, it's a, it's a state of being that is a reality, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now notice that Paul is using plural inclusive pronouns here. He uses we. He includes himself as part of this. So we know that 
Paul is not on some sort of crazy standing that's way, you know, stories above us that we just can't attain to because he's so much holier than us. No, he's talking about all of us having this equal blessed position poured over to us at the same time. So notice that through Jesus, we have obtained our introduction by faith. Now think about this. The idea of obtaining something that we deal with here. It's the idea of that we have a new introduction into this relationship. Now, what's interesting about this, we have obtained, is it's in the perfect tense. In other words, we've obtained it, and it's permanent, and it can never go away. It can never be lost. It can never be gone. It is something that is here to stay forever. And notice this idea of introduction. Does it mean introduction? Yes, it does. It means the fact that it brings us into this idea. But probably another way to look at this Greek word here is the idea of access. Maybe some of your translations say access. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, why is this important? If, if you were to think about it a little bit and you think about what it is for Jesus Christ to provide access into this standing of grace, I would hope that your mind would immediately go to the idea of the veil. If you remember when Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his life, remember that, no one took it from him. But when he understood that payment was sufficient for sins, he gave up his life, and that was the end of that supplying for our justification to be possible. He paid for sins. If you remember, the veil ripped in two. Now, why is that important? Because only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one day out of the entire year. And in doing so, he had to be cleansed perfectly and have no wrinkle or blemish on him and bring the right sacrifices in order to atone for the people. The veil is what protected people from the Holy of Holies because that is where the presence of God Remained. That's where the presence of God manifested itself. And in doing so, if anybody were to go in there in an unworthy manner, they would die. So what we find out now is we have open access to God's presence. In other words, through Jesus Christ, his blood paves the way. It is the pavement that leads up to the throne room of God. And any hindrance like a veil that would keep you from going in or any restrictions that would keep you from going in have all been quelled. They've all been destroyed. And all that you have remaining is the fact that by faith you are granted entrance because the work of Jesus has paved the way before God. So now, if you want to add something uh, uh, to this, maybe a scripture that would help this, I would ask you to turn to Hebrews 4. And you're probably familiar with this. Hebrews chapter 4, to think about what has been done for us. Hebrews 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. And if you notice, it brings up this Old Testament language of the high priest. Why is that? Jesus is our perfect priest. He is an eternal priests in the order of Melchizedek. He also offers perfect blood. All the priests before him had to have cleansing for themselves because they were all tainted by sin in some way. And the sacrifices of bulls and goats that they offered could never take away sin. They only cover up sin. Jesus's sacrifice completely washes away sin, never to be remembered again in God's sight. So look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We have one who did or who supplied the work for us, who did not have a blemish amongst himself. Now watch this, verse 16, therefore... Notice this is an encouragement to us. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What in the world would possibly give us the audacity to think that we could approach God's throne without any, and, and I'll go ahead and use the word, fear? And the reason why we can is because Jesus has made it possible. It's because now we have full access to God. One writer put it this way, we have an open door policy to God. His door is always open. And we are always invited and encouraged to come before him because we are acceptable in his sight because of the blood provided for us. Well, if you were to look back at Romans 5.2, you see through whom we have obtained our introduction, our access to the Father by faith. In other words, the veil is now removed as a hindrance and we can now come in into this grace. Now, here's what's interesting about grace. It is a permanent standing of God's favor. And notice that it says, in which we stand. It is a present situation. Right now, regardless of whether you feel it to be true, your positional truth, the fact about you as a believer in Christ, is that you stand in God's favor. That you have a standing in grace. Notice it's not saying that you are in a state of grace. That's not the idea. It's not about our practice, decision-making, how we think or feel or act or respond, none of that stuff. It has everything to do with the fact of a blessing, the second blessing that God has given to you here. The first one, we have peace with God. Number two, we now have a standing of grace. We stand before him in a place where God's favor is always washing forward towards us. It is a permanent position with ongoing good consequences. That's a great place to stand. That is a good place to be. So not only do we have as a present possession peace with God, not only do we have as a present possession, possession a standing in the grace of of God, But look at this last one at the end of verse number two. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. Let me give you maybe something that might be better. Sometimes with the word exult, we're not totally grasping what in the world that might possibly mean. But the idea of exulting is the idea of boasting or rejoicing. Are you saying that we can boast? Yes, we can boast. Absolutely, we can boast. The problem we were dealing with with Paul's uh, back and forth at the end of Romans 3 was the fact of you can't boast in anything that you've done in justification by faith. But what you can do is you can boast in everything that Jesus has done for you. Why? Because that's where the work stands. The work stands on the cross and that's where we rejoice or we boast. When we talk about braggadocious things, those things that come out of our mouth should be things that pertain to the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God towards us. That's 
where the idea of making much of a subject should be found. Notice we exult, we boast, we rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. Now, I think this is important for us to stop and think about. Because what we're actually talking about is the number three blessing that has already been secured for us as a result of justification by faith, but yet it's future. It's future when it's going to happen. Notice it says, and we exult in hope. Now, hope is not, I hope this happens. I hope we're able to have church next Sunday at 9 o'clock. I hope people will show up. I hope the coffee's good on that day. This isn't that type of hope because that type of hope that's put forward is the idea of slivers of doubt that you can find there. It's not total certainty. It's not coming to terms with the idea of the fact of perfection and what the Bible wants to instill in us when it uses the idea of hope is it's using the idea of a fully guaranteed future. We have a fully guaranteed future because of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it was put this way. It's expectancy with assurance. Uh, I, I've been reading a guy lately. In fact, his works are not popularly known. He has a channel on YouTube. I can't even think of what it is right now, and I wasn't even going to bring him up. But his name is Bruce Anstey, and it's, it's A-N-S-T-E-Y. I encourage you to look him up on the Internet. He's from Canada. Uh, from what I understand, he's suffering from Parkinson's right now, but he has a wealth of material that I've found very helpful in my study of God's Word. And I think that everybody would do well to secure yourself maybe a copy of his Roman study uh, that he's done. He does a fantastic job working through these concepts of what it is uh, to have the difference between position and practice. And, and I just want to commend his studies to you. If you can find some of his teaching uh, on YouTube, it's an excellent channel. And he has a lot of really great things that also link to uh, some of the Miles Stanford uh, writings as well. Uh, a couple of things I want to share with you about this idea of hope. Notice that the hope is in something. The hope is in the glory of God. Uh, this idea uh, of hope, again, expected with it's an expectancy uh, with insurance. In fact, it's the same type of hope that we look at in verse 4 that we're going to look at next week. And it's the idea of, of, a, of a cultivation uh, that takes place. It's a guaranteed future for the believer, but, it, but it's the idea that it constantly positions us, <coughs> and I don't want to get that confused with our position in Christ, so how, how would I say this differently? It constantly encourages us towards having a demeanor that is expectant of the things to come that are going to come from God because they're guaranteed by the blood of Christ. That's the idea. It's a future hope and expectation. So what we're finding is, is that our justification actually guarantees our glorification. Now, this isn't a foreign concept, and Mitch, forgive me for not putting this in uh, to the slides here, but if you would, turn with me to Romans 8. Verses 29 and 30, I want you to look at this. We'll look at a, a passage in Titus and then we'll close out. But I want you to see that this is not, um, th this is something that he has to come back to because of the certainty of which justification by the blood of Christ has secured for us. Notice in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And he predestined us to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son. That is the end point that we will come to. So that, here's the reason, he would be the firstborn among many brethren. 
Notice this idea of verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also, there's your word, justified. There's our Romans 3 word. And these whom he justified, he also, and notice that it's in the past tense, glorified. Now here's the idea. Has your glorification happened yet? Yes and no. Because of God's word and because of all that he accomplished in the death of Christ, your glorification is as certain as if it was already a reality in your person. But are we looking forward to the day of the rapture when our bodies will be redeemed off of this earth and we will stand before the Lord in perfect bodies because we have been glorified as the end point of our salvation? Yes, we still look forward to that. And what Paul is portraying here in this idea is it's as good as done. This number three blessing that you have that pours out a justification by faith is it is good as done. And so why not brag in it? Why not rejoice in it? Why not let that be the gasoline that you throw on top of the spirit in order to create a fire of worship that motivates your life? Again, notice he's not even asking anybody to do anything. He's just giving you the reasons for why you would want to do anything. And that is the idea because it's all been provided for you. As a last verse reference here to connect with all this idea, let's turn to Titus, little book of Titus. First and second Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter two. And let's take a look at verses 11 through 14. Look what he says here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now that's Jesus Christ, and that's speaking of his first advent. And notice what it says, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Watch this. Looking for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the second advent. It's the rapture is what it is. And the appearing of the glory, there it is, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. There's that death truth that the blood is the effectual tool and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Notice that the idea of glorification is future and when the glorification of the believer happens will be at the time of the rapture when he returns to the clouds and he calls us to meet him in the air and he takes us into glory and we will be with him always. What is Paul saying in connection with this that he wrote in Titus to Romans chapter 5 verse 2? He's saying it's as good as done. And because it's as good as done, you should boast, you should rejoice, you should brag. This should light your fire about the future being secured because of Jesus. So what do we see in these first two verses that we're dealing with here? Well, number one, notice that we have been declared righteous by God because of faith in Jesus Christ. And it's all, excuse me, it's all based on his work. Notice that we have now as a present possession is the blessings that are pouring out of this. Number one, we have peace with God. Not the peace of God, but we now have peace with him. We are no longer at war with him. We are no longer having to deal with the conviction of lostness in our life by the Holy Spirit. That's not where the result of conviction is leading to anymore. 
It's the idea that we are now in harmony with God because of Jesus Christ. Notice also as a present possession in verse 2, we've obtained, and notice it's a permanence, an introduction by faith into a standing of grace, into a permanent standing in God's favor. God is now always for us because we are in his son. That is blessing number two. And notice number three. We now have superior bragging rights. Why is that? Because the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the payment of his blood for sins is now because we have a future guaranteed, a hope is the idea, we can be certain of it, of the fact of the coming glory of God, that he will be glorified. Now, why should this matter? Because a lot of what has to do with application is not necessarily what you do. In fact, I would be way less concerned about what is manifested in our actions with people if it's not a result of a change in thinking. And I know that for myself, as I studied through these passages and became very convicted about my wrong thinking about the person of God and what exactly is bound up in justification by faith and what flows out of that in these first three out of seven blessings that we're going to see is the idea that the unbelief in my life keeps me from enjoying the already possession of this peace with him. I don't know if this helps you, but it helps me. God is not out to get you. He's not out to bring you down. He's not out to set you up for failure. Because of the blood, he makes it possible for you to come to him. And he encourages us to come to him. And he tells us, you now stand in grace. You don't have to try to stand in grace. You don't need to do better to stand in grace. That's where you stand. You don't have to worry about the future and whether or not you're going to make it. You don't have to buy into this false concept that Reformed theology uh, has been espousing uh, called future salvation. Uh, future salvation is an idiotic term. Your salvation is complete and it is done. There is nothing about your works that merit anything regarding your position or your standing with the Lord. It's all on the work of of Jesus. And that's where we need to keep it because that's where the bragging gets to set. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray and Laverne and Cheryl are going to come and lead us in a final song. And I will say this, if you are excited about the fact that the hope of the glory of God is a guaranteed future reality, that we can expect it with complete assurance that I encourage you to sing with rejoicing, to sing with bragging, to make much of Jesus Christ. Because I promise you this, if your cup is filled by these first three blessings that come out of justification by faith, the people around you are going to want to drink from that cup. That's a full life. Notice it's not about being something different, trying harder, making new resolutions, not doing this or that. It's about the idea of just embracing all that is already provided for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that justification by faith is such a profound truth. It is such a package. It is an incredible gift that has thousands, millions of little gifts inside of it that become really big deals to sustain us uh, through this life. 
God, how wonderful it is to know we're not just declared righteous, but we have peace with you. There's no longer any enmity, no butting of heads, no war. We're on your team. You are leading the charge, and you desire for us to be encouraged in this, that we have a full and freestanding and a place of favor and a place of grace. And not only that, but you encourage us in your word to brag about the fully guaranteed hope of the glory that you will bring us to. Thank you, God, that it's all a done deal. Thank you, God, that it's already secured. Thank you, God, that there's nothing left to add. Thank you that peace is a person. Thank you that Jesus Christ is our peace. And I pray that encourage our hearts and encourage our minds and causes us to set our thinking heavenward. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.